Lord God, thank you so much for what you're doing in this time. Thank you, God, for working in our hearts already. And Lord, I do pray that you would radically minister, radically minister in this time. That you would really speak to each of our hearts, Lord, and that we could hear you and get you and know you and understand you like we should. Please, Lord. And please, Lord, redeem every second. I pray, Lord, that everything you want to develop, let it be developed. Lord, I also pray in this that we would be, that we would come with Brazilian barbecue sized appetites spiritually and be ready, Lord, to feast with you now in your word. So come upon me, God, in such a way. Immerse me that you would be seen. Come upon me that you would do through me what only you can do. And minister in this time now, please let our hearts and minds be available for your shaping and molding. We just love you. And so do great work in this time, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I, I say so. Let the scripture have the final say. Here's where we're at. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're just transitioning out of If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Let's let. Thank you, Hugo. Merci. In, we are transitioning out of the time of Judges. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, and turn there for a quick second we will, for our context. If you remember, Samuel is a miracle child. He's a promise, a child of promise. And he makes his way uh, onto the scene by appearance of a husband with two wives. The other wife's extremely fruitful, but not loved like this gal is. And she has this son named God as Heard. He has heard, and his name is Shmuel, as we see Samuel. Uh, during this time, the high priest is a guy named Eli, or Eli. Eli, by the way, uh, has two punk kids, Hophni and Phinehas, and their names mean puncher and serpent mouth. I don't know what priest names his kids that, but it definitely kind of gives you a hint of what they're like. And they are very much up to their name. They were, when they were kids, when they were roughly Ruthie's age, they were threatening people and taking any meat they wanted versus just the parts apportioned to them as priests. And then as they got older, they got to the point where they were having, pardon me for saying, they were just having sex with, with women right at the gate or the entrance of the tabernacle. I mean, you can't get more flick your nose at God than that. And, uh, and what we see in all of this, as far as the decorum of his house, and so in all of that, God is transitioning out of the incumbents to this underdog kid out of nowhere and in a miracle, a child of promise, much like, of course, we see with Jesus toppling the religious leadership of the day uh, in in his turn, roughly a thousand years later. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 26, we we read this as Samuel grew in stature in favor of men. A man of God came to Eli, the priest, and he said, Thus says the Lord, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father? When they were in Egypt and in Pharaoh's house, did I not choose him out of the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar and burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children made by, of Israel made by fire? So why do you kick at my sacrifice and offering which I commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says... I said, indeed, that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that will cut off your arm. That's a metaphor. And the arm of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. You'll see an enemy in my dwelling place. Despite all the good that God has done for Israel, there will not be an old man in your house forever. God tells him that he's going to pay back for the wickedness of Eli and his household. Samuel gets the prophecy then in chapter 3. He confirms that same prophecy. As the Lord says, and take a look, 1 Samuel 3, verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel in which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And the day that I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken, that's what we just read, concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity for which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile and did not restrain them. So I've sworn to the house of Eli, and the iniquity of Eli, Eli's house, shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And what God said is, this will be the sign that you know it. Both your sons will die in the same day. 
So we have this prophecy waiting to happen. The prophecy is, Ellie, who's now going to be old and fat, we're going to read, and blind, has two punk kids that are getting worse by the day, and God's going to nail them. And he's going to cut off their lineage from being priests. But interesting, now all of a sudden Samuel has taken his place as a prophet. And as he's taken his place as a prophet, we read now that the word of God goes forth. Once, and hear me in this, once Samuel was willing to speak the hard truth. We live in a country where no one wants to speak the hard truth. We don't want to offend. We think we're being good friends by withholding. We think that we're being politically correct by withholding. We think that we're not offending by withholding. And truth be told, we're probably not offending until they realize that we're not being their friends at all. And I have watched people silently listen to people blurb on about gossip and evil matters, lies, where they know the truth and will nod in silence. Because they don't want to speak the hard truth. The Bible tells us faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. We often use the term silence is complicity. And the idea of that is when a person is lying and you don't set them straight, you're an accomplice to their lies now. And how many times do people blurb on about lies and we're afraid to offend them with the truth? Fascinating, Samuel has to tell Ellie that God is going to bring the hammer down on him and his family. Now tell me of the things you've had to confront. Is it as difficult as that? Just want to let you know God told me he's going to kill both of your sons. And all the things that God promised, the curse of your lineage will come to pass. Have you had to go and confront somebody? with information more difficult than that? And we don't want to. And part of it is because we want to be kind and we want to be loving, but truth be told, fascinating in our text, once Samuel does that, we read now the appearance of God, that God's presence seems to return. Amazing what happens when we tell the truth. In love, but the truth nonetheless. That all of a sudden, God makes His presence clear now. It is amazing how many times we can entertain and set ourselves aside and isolate. And then after a while, when you hear the lies long enough, you start to wonder if they're true. And yet what we read here is that when Samuel stood and spoke the hard truth, God made himself clear. And his word went forth. But as his word goes forth now, as we prepare for these chapters, there is another group that now shows up in strong prominence. A group we read here as the Philistines. Now, to give you an idea, the Philistines are first mentioned all the way back in Genesis 10, when God is repopulating the world with three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham, one of the reasons why God tells him to stay away from him, it seems like almost all of the enemies of Israel come from that guy's lineage including a guy named Mizraim and Canaan. Mizraim, by the way, is the father of the Egyptian people. Matter of fact, they were called Mizraimites. But Mizraim has six kids. He's a, he is the son of Ham. From Ham comes Mizraim, the father of Egypt, who has six kids. And one is a guy named Kasluhim. Probably not a name you're familiar with. But we read from this guy, Kasluhim, from whom come the Philistines. Interesting. They do not seem to be incumbent to the land of Israel. Many believe they came originally from the Isle of Crete. The name Philistine means, in the simplest sense, not from here. Foreigner. Now you're probably aware of the fact that once names transition, like the name Yehoshua turns to Jesus in Greek, which we get the name Jesus, how the name modifies as time goes on. The name Philistine or Palestina changes to the name Palestina, from which we get the term Palestinian today. 
If a, ter- if a person was to claim to be a Palestinian as a direct line as we see here in Genesis 10, they have to be Egyptian. They have to be from Mizraim. And their name means not from here. Interesting, because the term Hebrew means one from beyond. Which makes it kind of interesting when you realize two people are battling over a land, one called not from here and another called one from somewhere else. And if it wasn't for a divine God who owns the land to apportion it as he sees fit, neither should have right to the land at all. Well, with that in mind, interesting, because from that point on in the book of Genesis, every time you see the Philistines, it will be over ultimately a battle over water and wells. Abimelech, my father, the king, we read in Genesis 21, Abraham will argue over him about wells of water. And then, of course, we have that whole she's my sister thing that takes place. But when that thing gets resolved, he goes back to the land of the Philistines. In Exodus 13, God would not lead Israel out of Egypt into the land of the Philistines because he didn't want them to immediately have to face war, freak out, sissy out and go back. But we do read that in Exodus 15, God knew that once he nailed Egypt after the ten plagues, but also after destroying them in the Nile, or destroying them, sorry, in the Red Sea, that what would happen is, is that sorrow would take hold of the Philistines. And I look at this and I start to go, well, how do the Philistines apply to us? Interesting, once there's the attempt to actually put a proper king, Once there is an attempt to actually have God's word go forth and be predominant in your life, the Philistines appear. And I realize the Philistines are a really great example of the selfish flesh nature inside of each of us. Once God's word goes forth, there is a desire to say no to it. Where does that come from? Once Jesus wants to take, as he always does, but once we want to put him and put him in his proper place as king over our lives, the flesh rises up to battle us. Paul would say, I wouldn't even know what it was like to covet until someone told me not to. In Joshua 13 and in Judges 3, we read that there are five lords of the Philistines. Twice in Judges, during a time when the people bail on God, they are delivered, the people are delivered or sold into the hand of the Philistines. But no book in all of Scripture spends more time on the Philistines than the book of 1 Samuel. It is the broadcast detail of the Philistines. 125 times the Philistines will be mentioned in this book. It is so considerably serious that it is exactly as many times as the rest of the books of the Bible combined mentioning the word Philistine. That tells me something. The one book where the people move to having a king, a proper king in their life, is the one book where this selfish, demanding group of people appear most prominent. Interesting, do you know when you cease to see them? Once Jesus comes on the scene. Once Jesus comes on the scene with the New Testament, you never again see the Philistines. I think that's interesting. And if you want to slaughter that selfish flesh nature, the only one strong enough to do it is Jesus. There is no hint of them in the New Testament. The Philistines will always fight to make war when there's a king in my life, the proper king in my life, and I seek to make Jesus that proper king, of course. Interesting as we move into our text now. There is a comparison that God prepares us for. In chapter 3, there was the calling of Samuel, if you remember. Very personal, very intimate where there was a relationship between God who appeared and stood by Samuel and called him. And the unintimate, lifeless it of chapter 4. By the time we move down to chapter 4, verses chapters 3 through 5, the word ark will be mentioned 35 times. And we move from God to a box. Look at it with me. And the word of Samuel, verse 1, 1 Samuel 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Eben Etzer. Eben Etzer means stone of help. It will actually not be met. It won't be uh, named that for another 39 years. But clearly here we see, of course, that the writer is writing in retrospect. 
And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Aphek, by the way, means my strength, my firmness, or my restraint. And already we have this battle of the stone of help versus my strength, my restraint. And if you've ever talked to somebody struggling with sin, chances are this is where you find the battle. The battle is either going to be, are you going to try to do this in your strength or are you going to go to the stone of help? And it tells us that when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Well, then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined in battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army of the field. Quick question, how many men were killed in the field? 4,000. Okay, give it, come on out, look at these are easy questions. Give it to me good and strong. How many men, how many Israelites were killed in this battle? 4,000, beautiful. 4,000 men. Not beautiful that they died, but good that you're getting it. Now, here is the problem when we move from a relationship with God to just lifeless religion is we become ridiculously superstitious. And you know what happens when you leave God behind for just a practice and a tradition? The only time you seem to mention him is when you blame him now. And that's what we have here. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now, did you ever see anywhere that the people asked God about, the, about this battle, sought him in regards to the battle, whether they should do it in the first place or how? No, they just kind of wound up in the battle. <coughs> and in this, nowhere have they sought him yet, but they certainly want to blame him. And maybe you know someone like that. They don't even really have a relationship with God. Maybe they did. They don't now. But they have all kinds of problems with them. And they want to blame him for everything. But they haven't sought him beforehand. They've told him. And I watch people set themselves up. I told God this is what he needs to do. And he didn't do it. So clearly there's no God. Hmm. If he told me to give, someone told me, give me a, to the, you know, someone told me, hey, give me a, a million pounds. And I didn't. Does that mean I don't exist? Well, if that's the case, I'm going to start looking at my bills. And saying, give me a million pounds. And then when it doesn't, it doesn't exist. This could work out well. But unfortunately, that's delusional. Back in our story here, God is left behind. The only conversation he winds up in now is one of blame. So the people say, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, or Shiloh to us. Then when it comes... Among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. And here it becomes our problem. The easiest way to still think you're full-on Christian, but not be, is to replace God with an it. Did you notice in this, it doesn't say, let us go and seek the Ark of the, of the Covenant of God so that we can find out from God what He wants to do or bring Him into the camp. But instead what we have is, let us bring the ark that it may save us. Did you notice the it was the Savior here? God was present, but the ark is so tangible. I can touch the ark. Well, we'll see how dangerous that is. I can look at it. I can see it. I know that's there. The ark was brought from a place called Shiloh, or rest, while the Philistines are summoning their god, the merman Dagon. Please hear me. An idol is an it. An idol is an it that is set up to do what only God can truly do. So I ask, what can God truly do? Save me? Guide me? Lead me? Provide for me? Make me safe? Put me at peace? Fulfill me? Complete me? That's what only God can do. And when I set something else in its place, it will be an it. Let me go get it. Let me go and rest on it. Let me seek it that it may save me, guide me, lead me, provide for me, make me safe, put me at peace, fulfill me, complete me. We get it. But you realize a husband or a wife, a child, a job, money, a house, a car, they're all it's when it comes to this. If you're seeking from that which only God can do. <coughs> and we can easily do that. And then we don't even realize that we're actually putting an idol in our house. 
Because the idol may be something that God gave us as a blessing, but he didn't intend for us to worship it. He didn't intend for us to use it to replace our relationship with him. Man, we can do that. And we're bowing down and going, oh, I don't get it. Why am I still struggling when I've got this thing? I always wondered why a rabbit's foot was lucky. I don't know how that started, but one thing's for sure. It wasn't lucky for the rabbit. Let me think. An Italian horn? The Irish Blarney Stone? How many people want to kiss that rock before you think, this goes against everything I learned in health class? Knocking on wood? Really? That's our English thing. Many people are, oh, things are going well. Uh, who's supposed to say, come in? We can go to Africa and we can find an animal part hanging on our door. We can find sacred relics if we're Catholic. We can speak in tongues if we're Pentecostal. We can go to our traditions if we're Anglican. Or we can worship our Bible if we're Calvary. But they can't replace God. Let's say, well, I seek his word. And here I am teaching it. But I'm seeking him in the word. The word is a tool to him. Not the word is the end. And I want to be sure that I realize that there are no it's. We'll take it a step farther when Saul gets rebuked, the first king, a little spoiler alert. And he tells us that stubbornness is like idolatry. How's that for an idol in your house? Do you know what stubbornness is? Refusing to budge on a bad thing. Isn't that what it is? Because if it's a good thing, that's called tenacity. That's a good thing or endurance. But when it's a bad thing, it's stubbornness. Stiff-neckedness. Stiff-neckedness. I want to make sure I say that right. It doesn't sound weird. Now, in our text, this is the first time that the ark has been brought out to be a weapon. Have you noticed that? But I want to note this. The ark was not constructed until after Israel left Egypt. The ark could not have gotten them out of Egypt because the ark didn't exist in Egypt. It was in the wilderness that they built this thing. So how in the world could that be their deliverer or their savior when it wasn't even there to save them the last time? So, let us bring. Is there something that if you don't have it, you feel spiritually vulnerable Hey, I love having the Word of God with me at all times. I mean, of course, it's on my phone and on any of my electronics. I love to carry a Bible with me. A lot of times it, it, it's just great to open up the good old faithful and see how people react in, the, in, in uh, the trains and so forth. Sometimes it even gets me a seat, strange as that is. But I, I realize that, that in it, it's like when I don't have my literal Bible with me, so in the sense of my, the one that I can turn pages, I don't, I don't feel like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Because I know I still have it on my phone. It isn't like this thing is the, mad, is the magic. But I do know this. The moment I opened up that Bible for the first time, I started discovering who God really was. Because the Bible was not the end. It was the means to help me understand who He is. Because God told me that. He made that clear. But please understand what the people are doing. Get the ark here, and we're going to go and take down our enemies. Because it will save us. So the people, verse 4, and I better get moving if we're going to go beyond a chapter, right? Verse 4, so the people have sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. Now you understand God's like, I'm there, I'm there, why do you just want my box? I'm there, look for me. And the two sons of Eli, Puncher and Serpent Mouth, were there in the, with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of God came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Wouldn't you like to have been there for that? But now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of God, it, of the Lord, had come into the camp, and the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened to us before. Woe, for all of the time that the Philistines tried to appear, now they realize that they're battling God and they, they're fearful. Did you notice that the enemy seems to have a clearer understanding of, the, of, the, of where the real power lies than God's people do? I, there was a time I wanted to write a book called What the Devil Knows More Than You Do. 
Because according to Scripture, it seems like he really understands things better than we do. Like he actually understood the power of the cross much more than we do. He did not want Jesus going to the cross. Don't tell me that the devil thought he won when Jesus was at the cross, because the whole idea was to try to keep him from the cross. Remember when Peter told him, you won't go to the cross? Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. That tells me something. But please hear me in this. The enemy goes, who can fight that God? Woe to us. Oh man, we're toast. Because their God is coming to the camp. Remember the one who dwelt between the angels or the cherubim that said on the mercy seat on top of that box. <coughs> it says, woe to us, verse 8. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Boy, news gets around, doesn't it? Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, Philistines. You Philistines that you may become the servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. That tells you where they are at this point. The, the Hebrews have been their servants. That you do not become servants like the Hebrews as they've been to you. Conduct yourselves and fight like men. Or conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israel, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And there was a great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Quick, on this particular battle, how many soldiers fell? Beautiful. How many fell the first time? 4,000. So how many have died in the two battles so far total? 34,000. Did you get that? 34,000 guys have died in these two battles. Have you seen anywhere where anyone has sought the Lord? Just give me the box. I need the box. It's interesting. I've actually hung out with a couple of clergy members in Rome that was really, really sweet. Guys that were really kind of influential amongst the particular denomination I'm not a part of. And, and what's interesting is while we were there, one of the particular men, the clergy, had actually, he was cleaning up for the communion service that he had done, and he knocked over this tray, and the tray had glass on it, and he looked at him and he goes, oh man, seven years, bad luck. And I chuckled because I thought he was being sarcastic, and he's like, what's so funny? And I was like, oh, you're serious. I'm like, where in Scripture does it talk about luck? Where in Scripture does God say, don't you dare break glass, buddy? You don't understand how important glass is to me. He says, you don't understand in our culture here, that's the way it is. He says, do you know that if this vial that has oil in it, if I broke this, I could be cursed for the rest of my life? And I said, cursed? You could be cursed for breaking a thing full of oil? No wonder why they serve it in plastic container. My thought is, wow, if my salvation... Or my not being cursed hinged on, my, on me not being clumsy? There's some in this room, we'd really be in trouble. We'd, all, we'd have to kind of straitjacket ourselves for the rest of our lives. Well, the Philistines fought. Now, how many Israelites have been killed at this point total? 34,000. The Ark of God was also captured. And the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died, just like God promised. The one part that wasn't in the prophecy that God hadn't mentioned was the idea that the ark, uh, would, the ark would be taken. So that was the one thing that was actually news, if you will. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now the fact that Eli is going to be in Shiloh tells me that it assumes that he was very well confirming the release of the ark, if that makes sense, because that's where it was. He must have handed it to his sons, because his sons, I remind you, were the ones in charge of it, getting it to the camp down at Ebenezer. He came, there was Eli, sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, which is really kind of almost funny because he's blind, but for his heart trembled for the ark of God. I think it's interesting. His heart was not trembling for the nation, for his sons, for the army, but it was for the one thing. He's like, uh uh-oh. And I kind of get this. If you realize you're responsible for something priceless, the problem is he didn't realize his sons were priceless. He didn't realize the people were priceless. But he did realize that it's somewhere in his responsibilities. Don't mess with that ark thing. It says, A man came into the city and told it, and all the city cried out. And Eli heard the noise of the outcry, and he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. He was blind, which makes it odd that he was sitting and looking. Then the man said to Eli, 
I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, well, what's happened, my son? The messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Oh, and your two sons, also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they're dead. And the ark of God has been captured. Now, up to this point, until that last statement, if you think about it, this was information he kind of knew was going to happen. God had promised that. But it happened when he made mention of the ark of God, that Eli fell off the seat backwards by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, because the man was old and heavy, literally, if you will, fat and calloused. And he had judged Israel 40 years. And I think this is interesting, because the priesthood was a perfect example of what happens when you remove a relationship and make it just the politic of religion. We become fat and calloused people. Well, just to make things worse, it says that he had judged Israel 40 years. And his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, remember that means serpent mouth, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death... The women who stood by her said, Don't fear, for you have borne a son. But she didn't answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child. What happened, obviously, is she, she died giving birth. So among all of these people, the 34,000, we can add or minus this, or, actually add, or we can add this if you like. We have this, we have Ellie then who dies afterwards learning of it. And then a girl learns her husband and her father-in-law are dead. She gives birth and she dies giving birth. So the maids, the, the um, what do they call those? The, I almost said half maids. Midwives, thank you. See, it was half, half maid. Midwife. It says, thank you. They're the ones who actually now have to, to deal with the child. They say, don't fear, you've born a son. She didn't answer. She didn't regard it. So they named the child Ichabod. And Ichabod means inglorious. No glory. You thought it was just the headless guy on the horse? Now, Ichabod means no glory, because the glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured, and because the father-in-law and her husband, so she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. And I ask this, if there is something that solidifies in your heart the glory of God, can it be taken from you? Because if it can be taken from you, it's not from God. God gives that which no one can take. That includes your joy, your love, your peace. Those are not things that anyone can take. You can give them away. You can stifle them. We can, we can squelch, or, if you will, the, the Spirit of God. But show me any place in Scripture where God gives you something that someone else can take. He even told us that our treasures were to be laid in heaven where moth could not corrupt nor rust nor man could steal. Jesus said, when I'm raised again, I'll give you a joy no one can take. So if you think that the enemy is really taking stuff from you, and it really is anything that God gives you, that's intangible, those very things that he promises, chances are you've put them in something you shouldn't. If God removed this building if God removed the Bible you held in your hands, would you still love Him? Would it change His glory when all the earth belongs to Him? Well, God has something to do with the Philistines now, because though God clearly isn't the box, God has a lesson to teach the Philistines, who for the most part are ignorant. Look at the humor of God in 1 Samuel 5. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to Ebenezer, to Ashdod, from Ebenezer, remember that's rock of help, to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Now, traditionally in the Middle East, even to this day, it's always a battle of your God versus my God. Ha ha, my God won. And who is your God? In this case, he's kind of like Ariel's dad, you know. Uh, he's, you know, he's merman. He's, you know, he's got like the barrel chest of a guy and he's got the 
you know, because after all, what could inspire greater fear to you than a guy that's got a big fin down there? I don't know. But anyways, with all that said, that was their God. <clears throat> and they bring the ark in there because traditionally when you take spoils from your enemies and your God you think has defeated their God, you take the spoils of their God and bring them into the house of your God. Well, God's going to start there because that's a great place to start. Why did God bring ten plagues? It wasn't because he wanted to make sure we went metric. The reason God brought ten plagues is because there were ten basic gods in Egypt. And he wanted to make sure that all the Egyptians knew that he was really the only real one. Well, now God's got that lesson to teach the Philistines. Verse 3, Then the people of Ashdod rose early in the morning, and there was Dagon, fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. Do you think you get a clue from that? You're like, yeah, yeah, I got one. Hey, fishy fella, hey, here's your box. Then you get up the next day and go, huh, that's strange. He's on his face before the box. Well, what do you do at that moment? You know what we do in a moment like that? Traditionally, we prop our God back up, our idol back up in its place. When God starts taking down the thing that you've actually held, sometimes that's a friendship. Sometimes that's a position, something that you refuse to let go of that you know has been harming your walk with God or replacing God in some way. And what happens is that all of a sudden what you'll find is it's going to fall on its face before God. And at that moment, you're going to have to decide, do I want to go with the thing that's fallen down and prop him up? Or do I want to go with the thing that isn't going to fall down? Because if you have to go and get your God, if you have to go and pick up your God, if you have to go and fix your God, you've got the wrong one, baby. So here, step one, he's on his face, and they're like, oh, that's strange. Well, sorry, daggone, daggone it. I'm going to put you back in your place. So, when the people of Ashdod rose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set in its place again. When they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. But this time the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off at the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left on it. So now we come up the second day and what do we do? We take a look and his head's ripped off and his arms are ripped off. And all there was is that, you know, that sort of like the mannequin middle sticking down over there was falling on its face before the ark. So what happens when it gets this bad? And my question to you is, how long are you going to hold on to your idol? How bad does it have to get? Have you been propping it up when you really shouldn't be? Have you been at this point now where now you set some weird tradition? Because clearly not only has it fallen, it clearly can't lead like it should. Because it's really not God. That's the head. And it can't do what it promises to do. That's its arms. It doesn't have the strength you thought it once did. It doesn't have the brilliance you thought it once had. It doesn't have the direction you thought it once had. At this point, all you realize is it's just falling apart. You still don't want to let go. What do you think would happen if you were the Philistine priest? Would you think, dang, this box seems to be an awful lot stronger than my fish head friend. So you know what's interesting what they do? Notice. Therefore, verse 5, neither the priest of Dagon nor anyone who comes into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon of Ashdod to this day. So from this point on, don't actually, when you open the door, don't step there. Step over it. That's it? Now what happens, here's, here's the weird thing. Now what happens is, be careful when you come near this. Let's walk carefully when we come near this. And so here, okay, here's a case in point. Some gal finds some guy, he says he's a Christian. He says he's gone to church once or twice. You know, he was as a kid, maybe baptized before he had a choice to do anything about it. But hey, there was a time when you would never have fallen for that. But now you feel like you're getting older and now you really just, you went from he has to really look and act and sound and talk like Jesus to he has to breathe and he's, he really should be, you know, you shouldn't really be have any current warrants out for anything violent. Well, and then so what happens, you kind of go on, and then all of a sudden it gets weird. 
The relationship gets really weird and it gets violent and it gets nasty. But you say to yourself, I mean, in the beginning, what you start seeing is the thing starts falling down on you. And as it starts falling down on you, you start telling yourself these lies. Yeah, but you don't know what he's like on the inside. But you don't see the side of him I see. And you start accommodating for this abuse that you're starting to receive. And then ultimately what happens is they get crazy and then things come into the house you don't want in the house. And then the next thing you know, you're starting to wonder whether everyone in the house, including you, is going to get arrested. You wonder if there's diseases and other things that have been involved in it. It is amazing how complicated things get because you've been lying to yourself. And other people are like, get away from this thing. This is horrible. This is bad. Don't you see what it's doing to your walk? Don't you see? Can't you see the evidence? And they're like, no, I can't see the evidence. What I can see is this. I need to pick this thing up and put it back in its place. And then when it starts falling apart on me, I'm just going to be much more careful where I step. Don't worry. I've got this hand thing, this thing handled. I know how to handle myself in this. No, you don't. Because what you're doing is you're worshiping something that is clearly determined to be destroyed. Why are we doing that? How could we be so dumb? Because deep inside, we really want this thing to work out. We don't want to have to let go of this thing because we keep hoping this will turn around any second. You, it's got to turn around. But if it's going to turn around, are you supposed to be the one to turn it around? If it's turning you around the wrong way, do you really want to be the one that thinks that now somehow you're going to instantly turn into the Hulk and things are going to change? Hey, if I'm in a hole, and I know this isn't where I'm supposed to be, and I look up at where I should be because I'm reading the Word and I'm comparing it to Jesus, and I realize that's where I need to be, I, I, I realize changes need to happen. But let's say I look down and I see somebody deeper in the hole. And that's what I look at. I feel pretty good about myself at that moment because I realize I'm not, well, at least I'm not as deep as you are. And then I get filled with some form of compassion at a moment like this, and I want to pull the person up. But if that person wants to pull me down... Who has the advantage here on earth? They're going to be heavier. They have gravity in their favor. I don't. And I watch this happen over and over and over, beloved. Now, I'm not saying don't help a friend, but when it becomes a point where it becomes an idol and they don't want to change, if you can't change a matter like that, get out. Choose God over it. Otherwise, you find yourself a lot like Ellie. Remember when God said, you know what? I'm nailing you because you honored your kids over me. You weren't interested in changing them. And in the end of it all, you sided with them over me. I don't want to say, I don't want to have God say that to me about anything. So, what happens? Finally, it says, therefore, neither the priests do that. Even to this day, they won't step on the threshold. Verse 6. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravished them, struck them with tumors. That's a really fun word. It says tumors, but Ashdod, both Ashdod and its territory. Now, if you have the old King James, you'll see the word emrods. You can kind of guess what that infers. Some assume it might be the bubonic plague because there will be rats involved here in a moment. But the most common translation for the word is that God struck the people with hemorrhoids. Now forgive me, but this is frankly funny and sad at the same time. Could it be that what God was really saying to the Philistines it's, in my opinion, you guys are just one big pain in the butt. Oh, that's for you to decide. He could have just killed them all. But in their ignorance, they were going to learn that he was God supreme first. So the people of Ashdod are in a... Now, here's the funny thing. I, I, pardon me for this. I don't, I'm a boy, so I guess this is, I don't know, humor. But, but it says, when the men of Ashdod, verse 7, saw that how it was. Wait a minute, saw how it was. How does everyone in the town start to realize that everyone else in the town has them too? You know what I mean? Like everyone's kind of walking. How's it? Hey, Bob, how's it going? Oh, things are kind of rough. And then they all they kind of try to, let's all, you know, they're all just going to sit down to, to lunch and they're all like, ah, and you kind of let them like, huh. Which one is humble enough to go, so what's up, Bob? You realize, oh, things are rough, huh? Yeah, me too. Oh, me too. Me too. 
And this isn't a time of flushing toilets. This isn't a time where there are medications for this kind of thing. I'm not trying to develop it too much. I just want to get the point that imagine how strange this is for this Philistine community. Hey, they've already propped up their God. They haven't tried to glue on his head and arms, but it seems like at this point, don't step on the threshold. And now God's like, well, let's start making it more personal. And that's what happens. We start propping up our idols, and then we start creating our walk gingerly, but then sooner or later it just starts getting really personal. And it really becomes a pain in the butt. So, the men of Ashdod saw how it was, and they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us, and Dagon our God. Think of it as God spanking you. Therefore, they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines said, Well, what should we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, Well, let the ark of God of Israel be carried away to Gath, another one of the five major cities of, of the Philistines. So imagine it's like, you know, Scotland takes it, and it's like Edinburgh had it, and they said, well, let's just send it down to Glasgow. That's kind of the idea here. So guess what happened in Gath? I bet you probably figured it out. So it says then, so they carried away the ark of God of Israel away. It was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against that city with a very great destruction. He struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore, what did they do? They sent it to the next town, you know, uh, and that's Aberdeen. You know, and they sent it to Ekron. And so it was as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out and said, they brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so it doesn't kill us anymore or our people. Now, we don't read how many people here have died from this among the Philistines, but just for, for this moment, how many people among the Israelites had died in their battle? Do you remember? 34,000. Good, you're on it. We'll see why I'm even bringing that up here in a moment. So what happens? They cry out, so they gathered together the lords of the Philistines and said, send away, uh, send away the ark of God of Israel, let it go back to its own place so it doesn't kill us or our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. Verse 12. And all the men who did not die were stricken with tumors. And the city, I'm sorry, the cry of the city went up to heaven. Here we go. Chapter 6. Let's see its conclusion. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. How long was it in the country of the Philistines? Seven months. Okay, seven months. Do that for a moment. Keep that in mind. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, don't send it empty, but by all means return it with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand was not removed from you. So they said, Well, what's the trespass offering? Which we shall return to him. And they said, Five golden tumors and five golden rats according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on all of the lords. Now, have you thought this through? Who poses for the molds for this? And even funnier to me is being in Israel, and you're going to see this box show up. Anyone guess? When they say five, what are those things? Could you really guess that? And five golden rats... Could that be any stranger? We're going to keep God happy. But wait a minute. What they're actually doing is doing the symbol of their sin. You know, God did that in the book of Numbers. When the people in there complaining were bit by a fiery serpent or fiery serpents. And God says, take that, put it as a symbol upon a pole. And whoever looks to it will will be healed. Jesus will use that and say, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the, in the wilderness, so the Son of Man is the symbol of our sin, must be, must be raised up that whoever turns to him then in, in belief would be saved. I get it. Notice what they say in verse 6. Then why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh harden their hearts? Wow, they seem to know that story well, don't they? Well, when he did mighty works with them, that he didn't let the people go, that they might depart. Now, therefore, here's their plan. Make a new cart. Take two milk cows which have never been yoked. And hitch the cows to the cart. Take their calves home away from them. Take the ark of the Lord, set it on the cart. 
put the articles of gold which they are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch. If it goes up the road to its own territory, to Bet Shemesh, then he has done us a, this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that this is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. Wow, bad day. No matter where this thing goes, hemorrhoids and rats. Now, here's the idea. You take two cows that are traditionally very maternal. They're milk cows, so what gender are the cows? Female. That should be simple, right? And you take from these mother cows their babies. Take them away. And then take these two cows that have never had a burden on them and hitch upon them a cart. Now, it shouldn't matter where the, what's on them. If they're mother cows, where would you expect the cows to go? To their calves. That's actually a very simple thing. So it's very contrary to their nature for them to go the opposite direction towards Israel. So we'll take these two mom cows, take their baby cows, their calves, put them in one direction, put a cart on them, put the ark and this box with golden hemorrhoids and rats. And then so there's two little boxes. You know, there's God's box and this box of goodies. And then let's see where the cows go. If the cows go to Israel, then clearly it is God. They're God. If it doesn't, well, we've had a really bad day. So the cows, verse 12. So it says, they set the ark of the the Lord on a cart, the chest of golden rats, and the images of the tumors. Verse 12. Then the cows headed straight to the road of Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went. They did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, you get the idea here that God made clear it was him. Now, understand, this is because, strangely enough, God actually loves the Philistines, too. And what he wants them to know is it really was him, and they need to turn to them. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, lifted up their eyes, saw the ark, and rejoiced to see it. Now, the wheat harvest, and this is important, we're almost done now. The wheat harvest takes place, it's the last great harvest of the year. That's usually at the end of October, towards October, which is the last great feast of the year. It's also the last great, you know, the feast, that's the feast of Sukkot. So let's see, how many months was the ark in Philistia? Sorry? Seven months. Awesome. Go backwards. Seven months, including October. Where does that take us? I love your wheels are spinning. I've almost killed you here. It's March, April. Why is that important? Because March, April is the first of the great feasts. Three great feasts, if you remember. The feast of the first. First of all, it's the feast of deliverance. That is the feast of Exodus. That's the feast we call Passover, Pesach. Then it's the feast of the first great harvest. And then it is the feast of the last great harvest. Are you following me on that? Follow me on this for a moment. We're almost done here. Don't lose me. Okay. Now, we know that the first two, I mean, and he tells us, God tells us, these are of eternal significance. The three most important, will we'll chronicle the three most important dates in history. Well, of course, the first, that of the Exodus or the Passover, what takes place on the Passover proper? The death of our Lord and Savior, the Lamb of God. Because what the Passover reminded us of was that the lamb was slaughtered so that we could be delivered out of the hand of the enemy, out of the land of the slavery. We get that. And of course, that ultimately pointed us to the most important date that splits history in half. Jesus is coming and his death on the cross and resurrection. I get that. Including in that time was the first fruits where you stomped the best of your first fruits into the ground. That was your barley, by the way. And you said, as that is, may the whole harvest be. In the same way, Jesus was crushed, put into the ground, if you will, in the tomb and raised again. Then comes the Feast of the First Great Harvest, we call Shavuot or, or Pentecost. What takes place on that day? Acts chapter 2. God pours forth His Holy Spirit and 3,000 people give their life to Christ. What is that? The First Great Harvest. Do you get that? But interesting, we have no major event in the Gospels, per se, that takes place clearly described by the last great feast. You know, I don't know if you're aware of this. The high priest in Jesus' day was a Sadducee. Do you know that? And his whole crew were Sadducees. 
Which means Sadducees didn't believe in anything they couldn't see. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in any of that. And remember the high priest has to go into the Holy of Holies once a year to offer sin. And if he was not correct, he would have been, he would have died. How does that guy go in on Yom Kippur and come out alive? Because when the temple that was before that one was captured in 586 by the Babylonians, they not only ransacked the temple, they took the Ark of God. And the Ark of God was never returned. In other words, during Jesus' day, whoever went into the Holy of Holies, all they went into was an empty rock. There was no Holy of Holies. There was no... Um, ark for them to go to. But interesting, because, and this is kind of something to ponder if you're kind of a prophetic kind of minded person, could it be that when the last great harvest, which is yet to come, at the end of the time of the Gentiles, when Jesus comes for his own and this massive amount of people get saved, that one of the things you're going to see with all of this will be that the ark of God returns? I wonder. There are some who really believe that they know where it is underground. And those who actually run the Temple Mount right now, actually not those who own it, but those who feel responsible for it among the Muslim population, they're called the Waqf, they're actually going underneath, underground right now, and grinding to pieces the things that they find under there, saying there was never a temple there. But we're going to see the power of that, by the way, in a moment. God knows how to deal with that. God knows how to deal, knows, knew how to deal with the Philistines in regards to the Ark. Check out what happens here in a moment as we close this. So what happens? The people see the ark coming on a cart. Don't miss that. Coming on a cart with a couple cows. That is not the way that the cart's supposed to be, or the ark is supposed to be carried. It's supposed to be carried on two poles by priests. We're aware of that. But God's granting them a favor in this because, let's face it, they're Philistines. They don't know that. He's not punishing them in their ignorance. So what happened? The cows headed straight. The people rejoiced to see it. Verse 14. Then... The cart came to the field of Joshua at Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there. Interesting. Do you remember where the ark was taken from? A place called Ebenezer, which means stone of help. They find a large stone. It says, they split the wood of the cart, <coughs> offers the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Boy, they didn't see that coming. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord, the chest that was with it. Imagine what happened when they opened up that other chest and went, Hey, guys, you got to see this. Which was the articles of gold and put them, in, put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. Now, wait a minute. Did they just put all those things on a stone, including the gold, and just sacrifice it to God? Then, so when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors for which the Philistines... Returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. By the way, to this day, the area we would call the Gaza Strip, which, of course, is what they might say is Palestinian territory. The golden rats, according to the number of the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Chabel, on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua in Bethshemesh. Of course, the stone's still there. <coughs> Last thing, because this is where, to me, it just gets wild. Then God struck the men of Bethshemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Now, who looks into the ark in a moment like this? Hey, the ark's in our town. Came by a cow on a cart. A couple cows on a cart. He struck 50,070 men of the people and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Now don't miss this. The box is not wider than this. We remember when we had the time when we went through that. The box is not larger than this aisle here. How many men according to this were slaughtered by looking into the ark? 50,000 and 70. How many men died from the Philistines? 30,400. Do you realize more people died from looking in the ark than in both battles combined? But here's, my, here's the thing to you that I would like to ask. How many guys do you think can look in a, in, an, in a box this size at one time? If you went on all sides. 
hundred if we were going to be really super generous and it was in a valley. So they all peek in it and they die. And then a group behind them go, huh, something just killed a hundred people. Let's climb over the dead people and look and see what it is. Hey, there's, a, there's the ark. Let's go peek in it. And they die. How big is a pile of 50,000 people? 50,069 people. How high is that mountain that you climb as the 50,070th person and say, what killed all these people? Maybe I should go and take a peek myself. Would you agree that's insanity? So why do we do it? Why is it when we know that there are things that happen where people go down over and over and over and over again that we think we're the one person that's going to escape it? Oh, it took down 50,069 guys, but I feel lucky. 50,070 people look in a box and die. Because, see, God knows they should know better. The Philistines didn't. Interestingly enough, we don't read that the Philistines even had the chutzpah to peek into the box. What would they have seen? The broken law. That was what was in there. According to the book of Hebrews, a bull of the manna, and the broken staff of Aaron that budded. Interesting, because the law that was broken was covered by the seed of mercy that was covered in blood. And if you want to go back to the broken law, all that's left for you is death. That's the whole book of Hebrews in a nutshell. So finally, what would you do when you just lost 50,070 people because they peeked in above? Verse 20, the men of Beth Shemesh says, who's able to stand before this holy Lord God? Whoa, notice the difference now. Not just it, but he. And whom shall it go up from us? Wait a minute. Shall it go? Is God still an it here? Ponder that. So they send messengers to the inhabitants of Kirthiram, saying, the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down now and take it up with you. Interesting, what the Philistines said is, God's angry because we have his box. We better give it back to him. But the people of God were the ones that were like, I don't know, man, this God, this box. You know, one of the things that clears that up are trials. And another thing is persecution. When God wants to purify his church, he lets trials come. As he says, the trials, fiery trials come so that your faith, which is more valuable than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, would be proven genuine and result in praise, honor, and glory when Christ is revealed. Now listen, as we go to prayer, and here we are. Oh, look at That's nice. And here we are, three chapters tonight. It started with the people going to battle without seeking the Lord. They lost. How many people died? 34,000. But in the midst of that, they say, well, here's the deal. We need to go get it. If we can get it, we're going to win. I'm in it. You're in it. I'm not your ace in the hole, beloved. I will pray for you. I'll give you counsel as your pastor. I love that. But if I'm not leading you to Jesus, I'm just an obstacle. And you don't need an it. You need him. And if I can help lead you to him, I'm doing what I should. But do the same with me. We cannot afford to be silent when truth is necessary. We have to tell the truth. Because there's a time when no one will endure it. And we need to be different. We need to be people who live by God's truth. So when someone says, do you really want to live by that book? Tell them the truth. I really do. And as they do, what God has done is he systematically shown, first of all, that the gods of the Philistines weren't good enough. They were just posers anyways. And God had to deal with the Philistines to show he was really the one God to be worshipped. And then when he came back, well, when the ark came back, he was already there. He needed to show the Israelites the same thing. Stop worshipping a box and come back to me. As we go to prayer now, my prayer for you and my prayer for me is that we would get back to that relationship that we rightly need between us and Jesus. 
And maybe tonight God's going to tell you, let go of that thing. Stop propping that thing up. Stop trying to glue the head and the arms back on this thing. Stop trying to figure out how you can walk around it when you should just realize this thing is not what you thought it was. Get away from it and get right. Because in the end of it all, what we need is Jesus. And when Jesus adds things, it's not to replace him. It's to bless us so we can lead others to him as a result of it. His death on the cross was to pay for our sins. We know that. His resurrection was to give us new life. And that new life is no longer to be entangled by those nonsense. Pray with me, would you please? God in heaven, Father, I want to thank you on this chilly May evening here in London. You have clearly shown once more that you are the God over all. And in that, God, I just pray tonight that you cleanse us personally. We've prayed on a couple and several occasions. God, purge from our fellowship the things, Lord, which break your heart. But we recognize we want to pray that for ourselves. Purge from us personally those things which break your heart. That we would be the the cathedrals you intend for us to be. Break false allegiances. Get us out of our dagons so that we could even tonight find ourselves perfect and pure before you in intent and in purpose. God, please, tonight, revolutionize us. Please, tonight, get us right where we belong. Show us, Lord, that the glory that you have is not based on it, just you. And that it can't be stolen or taken by any enemy. But Lord, tonight, get our hearts totally where only you are in our crosshairs. And there, God, consume us. Make us right. Make us people, Lord, where we recognize because you are with us that our roar should shake the earth. That the world should be changed Because we know that our God is with us. Emmanuel. Come to die for us. Raise again. Live in us. Give us new life. Jesus, we know that you have paid our price. We know you've resurrected. We confess you not only as our Savior, but as our all in all. Please, be everything you intend to be. And de-idle our hearts. That tonight we could fall in love with you even as you love us. Please, tonight, transform us. And let us leave here so buzzing on you that the world would notice the difference. So here we are, we're yours. Raise us up to be the lights of this world around us as you intend. In Jesus' name. Amen.